right, good evening. If, uh, if you didn't notice, there may have been a theme in the songs this evening. Uh, tonight, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 96. Uh, we'll get there in a few minutes. Get a few uh, preliminary things to uh, just kind of talk through. Uh, again, I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak tonight. Um, it's not, not often I get to. And uh, so when I do, many times it's kind of in a single type thing. So where do I go? What do I look to? Um, what can I try to accomplish in just a few minutes and not expect to come back soon? So uh, I, I've found that it, it, it tends to be wise to look to the Psalms. Uh, there are 150 of them, and so I've got a, got a good, good number of options uh, to pick from. I uh, talking to Pastor Derek when he was here a couple weeks ago, and he said that uh, that's, that's what he's doing for Wednesday evenings, I think it was. He says they've been walking through the Psalms for, well, for, for a while now, and he says it's, it's great. I just, just keep going right along, and we're not going to run out for too long. So uh, tonight we'll be looking at Psalm 96. Uh, before we get into it, let me show, let me just uh, talk about a few background things to the Psalms. Many of these things are probably familiar to us. You probably already know these things, but uh, just, just as a quick review, let's see if this thing will work. Uh, Psalms is a book of praises. There are many, many different Psalms. There's 150 of them. Uh, it was written over, as you can see, the course of about a thousand years. Uh, one or more of them is written by Moses. Uh, one or more of them is written by Ezra, and they lived about a thousand years apart. David, we know, uh, many of us might think that he wrote well, not all of them, but most of them. He probably only wrote maybe about half of them, which is maybe a little bit of a surprise. But there were many, many different individuals involved in the writing or the penning of the Psalms over that time. Um, it's also in structure. It's actually five different books. Study that on your own. We don't have time to get into that tonight. But Hebrew poetry is a beautiful thing. Um, it's just... One of the main things about Hebrew poetry is the idea of parallelism. Um, in our mind, we think poetry, we think something's got to rhyme, something's got to kind of have a sing-song cadence to it, and, and we're used to that. It's nursery rhyme, maybe, but not, not Hebrew poetry. This is thought rhyme, uh, synonymous parallelism, saying the same thing over again. Antithetical parallelism, saying something and then saying something that contrasts. Uh, synthetic, where it would build or building a picture. Um, a consideration of these or a study of those will help you if you're looking into the Psalms or even Proverbs or any of the other poetic passages in the Scripture. Um, another key feature is that of the acrostic, which if you're familiar with Psalm 119, it was mentioned this morning, there are about nine different Psalms that use the acrostic pattern, which of course is using a different letter to start each of the verses. Psalm 119, I imagine, is the most obvious and, and popular one. Um, a great study a few years ago. Uh, Pastor McLaughlin brought us through that, and that was just a phenomenal study of that huge chapter. Uh, there's various themes in the book of Psalms. We see prayers, poems, obviously, uh, hymns, worship, and all of these may include praise, adoration, uh, uplifting, and thanksgiving to God. Uh, different uh, types of of Psalms, and I believe Pastor Mion mentioned this about a month ago when he spoke, um, went through, I think, a list almost the same or similar to this, and depending on where you look, you may come up with a slightly different list, you may come up with slightly different names or terms, but this is a list of a handful of different types of Psalms, because if you were to start at Psalm 1 and go to 150, you would pretty quickly realize 
not all of these are like the other ones, and there's quite a few different things. So you take a look at that. I'm not going to talk through that, and I'm definitely not going to try to give you, you know, a list of numbers to add to each of those, except for uh, the third one there, the enthronement psalms. Uh, these are describing God's sovereign rule, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a few seconds here. But uh, one thing else that I'd like to say about the psalms, and again, you probably know this, uh, many times as we look at one of the psalms, we may find the psalmist kind of struggling. Many times a psalm can start... And we're not, we're not at the high point yet. We are reading and we're finding all about this fellow's difficulties, all about the problems that he's going through, and all about the realities of life that are literally slapping him in the face. And we can identify with that, I think. If you can't, just close your eyes, think for a few seconds. There it is. But the reality of life, can cause us to just feel overwhelmed. But as we get into the Psalms, and some of those specific Psalms that are like this, the psalmist will always stop, not focus on his emotions, not focus on the difficulties surrounding, but instead look at the Word of God and at the works of God. And between those two things, what God has done and what God has said will always bring us back up from the miry clay and they will set us, our feet, on that rock, which is who God is and what he has done. And that is just something that if you were to study the Psalms and you uh, get into them, that is a wonderful thing to think about. Instead of focusing on the emotions and the difficulties and the troubles of life, instead we can focus on the truth of who God is. Um, The enthronement Psalms, I mentioned that, that was in the list earlier. These describe God's sovereign rule And through these psalms, we can acknowledge God as the powerful creator and the sovereign Lord over all of his creation. I presume that depending on which list you may look at, depending on who you read and study and listen to, or how you were to uh, divide them on your own, you may come up with a different list. But here's, here's a list of six of them. And over the last few years, I've had the opportunity to try to teach or preach through almost all of these. And so tonight we're going to look at Psalm 96, where we see declaring the glory of God. These are just uh, beautiful psalms speaking to who God is. And so Psalm 96, if you are there, go ahead and notice. um, I'm going to ask you right there, Psalm 96, it starts, you can see, but turn. you may need to turn back. Psalm 93 begins, the Lord reigneth. And then the psalm goes on. Maybe turn a page, Psalm 97. The Lord reigneth. And the psalm goes on. And then Psalm 99. The Lord reigneth. And the psalm goes on. It's not hard to get the message. It's not hard to see what's being done here. The Lord reigneth. Psalm 96 does not start that way, but if you glance down at verse 10, say among the heathen that the Lord Reigneth. We see the theme coming right through. I'm going to go ahead and read the psalm here. I'm going to pray, and then we'll look through and see uh, some things, hopefully learn some things tonight. Maybe we already knew. Maybe we just need to be reminded of. But uh, let's look at Psalm 96 tonight and see the glory of God in his reign. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people. For the Lord is great, 
and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh. For he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Heavenly Father, as we look tonight at this psalm, I ask that you would give us clarity of thought. Give us the opportunity to see you in a way that maybe we haven't seen before or a way that we need to be reminded of, Father. We ask that you would clear our minds from other distractions. Help us to see you high and lifted up. Help us to see you as the Lord that reigneth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick preview here. We just read through the psalm, but you can see I've tried to break it down into some some areas here. The first three verses, if you missed it, sing, 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 sing unto the Lord. And by doing so, we will bless and we will show and we will declare those other three commands that come along with the sing. And I wouldn't imagine that the psalmist was asked, why should we do this? But in case someone dared ask that question, he provides an answer. Because the Lord is great, because he's the creator, and because of his honor and majesty and his strength and his beauty. Now moving on, similar to sing, sing, and sing again, we see give, give, and give to the Lord. And accompanying commands there, bring, and come, worship, and fear the Lord. And then I think the climax of the the psalm here in verse 10, the statement, the Lord reigneth. And then we see that the nations and the nature will all rejoice. All creation will be joyful because of that. And they will see him coming as a judge. And not just any judge, but the absolutely righteous judge, the one who is filled and is holiness, as we were reminded of this morning. The background of this psalm, I would have to admit, is not maybe 100% certain. Maybe you, you are 100%. I, I'm not 100% positive. Uh, much of this same text is found in First Chronicles 16, which is the event where David and the people brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But it's not verbatim, it's not word for word, and it seems that some adjustments may have been made from uh, Chronicles, where it's most, much of the same thing is there into here, Psalm 96. So whether it was the words of David as he penned them there in Chronicles 16, with some slight adjustments here or there, I don't know, or whether it was someone else years later who looked back at the words of David from Chronicles 16 and said, maybe, maybe we'll add a few verses here or there, maybe adjust some of the themes, some of the thoughts. Um, I'm not really sure. If you are, good for you. But uh, either way, whenever it was penned, whether it was David or whether it was hundreds of years later, whether it was uh, 
this, that, or the other. We have what we have, and we know that the message is clear. The Lord reigneth. The message is obvious. Uh, one interesting thing we might see here, and we'll, we'll see it here pretty shortly, um, the references to the people to whom the psalm is addressed, who is being called for, who is being, being uh, commanded and directed to do things. Uh, this is not what we might have expected, a psalm directed at the children of Israel, a psalm directed maybe at just some of the children of Judah. We, we see over and over all the earth, all the peoples, all the kindreds of the peoples, these different phrases. And that leads us to realize that this, of course, is looking ahead, as Pastor Yao was mentioning, into a yet future timeline. And again, we certainly don't have time to dig into much more of that, but this is showing something that will be much more in the future than that which was in the past. But the psalm... Let's go ahead and get into these, these verses. Verses 1 through 3. Sing unto the Lord. The theme is quite obvious. Sing. We, we sang tonight. We sing almost every time we have a church service. We gather together. Um, God has blessed us with the gift of song. And I think probably all of us to some extent would say that we enjoy or appreciate or are encouraged by song. Here we're encouraged three times, sing, sing, sing unto the Lord. I don't think you'll miss it. We're told to sing. So here, as we consider it, we must ask a few questions. What are we to sing? Who is to sing? Maybe to whom are we to sing? When are we to sing? What is the song? And why are we to sing? All of those questions could come to mind with this song command. So to sing, we are to sing a new song. We're to sing unto the Lord, but also when we, were, when we sing to the Lord, is He the only one that would hear us? No. Many others could also hear the same song, and so it should be something that would also be a blessing to those that would listen or those that would hear. And we're told to sing from day to day. That's pretty obvious. Every day, continually, something that should be a habit. Maybe not nonstop 24-7, but something that is not a one-time thing. Sing and keep doing it. And then what are we to sing? This new song. We'll get to that in a few moments. This is a new song. Why? We'll get to that in verses 4 through 6. But song is a valuable and wonderful aspect of our existence. Pastor has spent a few Sunday nights earlier this, year, this summer uh, talking about music, so I won't try to add much to any of that. But uh, this is not just some song that we already knew, some song that's familiar to us, some song of our own creation as mankind, some song that we would enjoy in our flesh. This isn't something that would be to our own delight. This is a song that is to honor God. This is one that is glorious and delightful. The message of the song, it is a new song, and we're to show forth His salvation from day to day. What better topic for us to declare to others than the salvation that God has provided? This is, again, no mere 
jingle from our former lives of sin and self-indulgence. This song is all about the Creator who is the Savior, and we'll see later who is the Judge. We're to follow the idea of singing, sing, 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 with these three other imperatives where it says to bless His name, to show His salvation, and to declare His glory. I'm not much of a wordsmith or an etymologist, but I think all those words have to do with the idea basically of publishing any way you can. If you can't sing, that's me. If you can't one way or the other, get this message out. Maybe in our vernacular, we would say post it, email it, get a billboard, tweet it not to cheapen it, but to say, get it out in every way imaginable. Publish this song, this message. Sing and get it out there. Let people hear this good news. I'm reminded of both Isaiah 40 and Romans 10, 15, where we are reminded that they are publishing the glad tidings, the good news that must be shared. Other times we see songs in the Bible. We think about the song of Moses as, they, as he sang about God's deliverance. We see the song in Isaiah 6 as the seraphim are declaring that God is holy, 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 focusing on who God is. We also see the song at the birth of Christ where they are, the angels are announcing his arrival. And then also we see this, the song in Revelation 5 where in the throne room of heaven we hear a new song sung about you, Christ, who is worthy to take the Lamb And worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength, honor and glory and blessing. And this is maybe this new song that we are to sing. This may well be the final crescendo of the new song. And we can only imagine the verses that we will continue to sing as we praise the Lord into eternity. We are to bless His name. That goes back to Exodus chapter 20, the third commandment. We are to honor his name. We are to not use his name in vain. We are to honor the Lord in our speech. We're to show forth his salvation. And this, I think, would probably, I know it says sing, sing, and sing, but I think as we were to show forth his salvation, if we do so by song, people might hear our song, but what will they see? They'll see our lives that we live. Is it backing up the song or is it in contrast to the song that we sing? Our lives must echo and complement the song of salvation that we, that we should be singing. Are we displaying? Are we showing forth? Are we singing his salvation message before others? We are to declare his glory among the heathen. This is the great missionary text. We are to proclaim or herald the good news of his salvation. Uh, The songs that we sang tonight have had to do somewhat with this theme. Uh, The message of the song would be like many of the other songs, psalms that I mentioned earlier, but it would be the person and work of the Lord, who he is and what he has done, or in short, his word and his works, all about the Lord. All the people must be told. It says, among the heathen, but his wonders among all people. Again, Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? They must be told. Who is needing to be told? Again, I think the psalmist tried to come up with almost every way he could to describe 
all peoples. Did you mean, yes, I meant everybody, okay? Did you get it? The heathen, all people, all the earth, everyone. Yes, them too. If you can think of them, I had them in mind. It's probably what the psalmist is thinking. Question, are we involved in spreading the gospel? Am I involved? Are you involved? Are we showing forth? Are we singing this message? Whether you can sing well or not, are we showing his salvation? Are we declaring his glory? And are we showing his wonders? How am I involved in this activity, in this message? The next set of verses show the reason for the new song. Again, he tells us what to do. Someone might be tempted to say, why should we do that? And he says, for the Lord is great. Honestly, he could have put a period there and stopped. And we would all said, okay, yeah, that's right. The Lord is great. Let's keep going. But he goes on. He he gets, gets deeper into it. For the Lord is great, and he is greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. God is absolutely great. A couple weeks ago, during Pastor Ben's ordination, there was discussion about theology and doctrine. It was just wonderful to sit and listen and uh, hear and think about many of those things. But God and his attributes, the sum of his being, as we finite humans understand who he is, any attribute that we could think of to ascribe or describe or talk about God, would we not have to say whatever it is, God is the absolute greatest at that thing. He's the most powerful. He's the most wonderful, the most loving, the most everything. He is the greatest. And because of that, he is greatly to be praised. Who or what else could we praise? We see many others get adoration or praise around us. None of them are deserving of it. God alone deserves our praise. Again, due to his inherent greatness, he is greatly to be praised. And it says, he is to be feared above all gods. Consider the folly of idolatry. Again, look back at the commandments, Exodus chapter 20. These are the first two commandments. Have no other gods before me and bow down to no graven image of any sort or any kind. All the gods are idols. Isaiah goes into this in chapters 40 through 46. There's a series of different passages in there where Isaiah basically makes some scathing remarks about idolatry and the absolute folly of it. And and the one that sticks out to me the most is where this guy goes out and he cuts down a tree. And for, for lack of a better description, he cuts down the tree and he cuts it into thirds and he takes a third of it and, and he, he, he builds a fire and he takes a third of it and he builds the things he needs. And then the leftovers, literally the residue, the stuff that's left when he was done and all the work of his day and all his other duties and tasks are accomplished, he sits down and with the leftovers in his boredom at night, he sits and carves and whittles a thing. Probably done that before. I'm a piece of wood, got a knife. I'm going to mess with this and see what comes out. And the man does that. And when he's finished, he has this thing that he has fashioned by his own hand. Well, that's kind of neat. That's fun. What does he do next? Well, he brings it down and he has somebody overlay it with gold. And then when he's done, he says, wow, this is pretty fantastic. I've made it. It will be my God. 
This is absolute madness. And he sets it up, and then he bows down, and he worships it. And he prays to it. And he treats it as if something that had given him... It's nonsense. It's madness. Read some of those chapters. It's, uh, it's sad, but almost, almost humorous. But it's sad to think about the folly of idolatry and how empty and vain it is. Who or what are the gods of the heathen, the idols of the nations? We described it as something the man generated, made out of his own hands and his own imagination. The gods of them are just that as well. They're, they're their own imaginations. How many of you have ever imagined a scenario, imagined something to be much more scary than it was? Anybody ever have monsters under their beds? Okay, some of us may still have monsters under our beds. Um, sleep right there on the floor. There's almost no way. But uh, is there really a monster under your bed? No, of course not. You have imagined this thing. And that is all that the idols and the gods of the heathens are. They are their own imaginations that they fear before. None of them deserve fear. None of them deserve anything. They are concoctions of the imagination, wood, gold, Stone, whatever. This, this is ridiculous. None of them are worthy of any praise. We look at that and we think, yeah, yeah, of course. This is 2023. We wouldn't have any idols. I don't have any little statues or figures in my house that I bow down to and, and worship and do any of that nonsense with. But what idols might we have? What idol might there be in your Maybe not a physical structure in your house, but maybe in your heart that has displaced God and received some of the greatness that we should ascribe to Him. Could be any number of things that we might consider to be great when only God is great. But we see here that the Lord has made the heavens. I must move on. None of those idols have made anything. The man made the idol. The idol didn't make the heavens. The idol didn't do anything. We think about nature. We think about the glory of who God is and what he has done. We think about the heavens. We think about uh, even our own physical frame as we consider that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Nothing that we see could we make on our own. We couldn't make the heavens, much less any of these nonsense idols make the heavens. We think about the the medicine or the science that we claim to understand these days. And yet there are th still things that go wrong or go different than what the doctors might have expected, and we can't seem to figure it out. Well, that's because we didn't make it up. It's not our idea. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. God is the one who has created us. It says honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. These ideas, if you stop and think about them, which we don't have too much time tonight to stop and dig in here, but honor and majesty. In our human mind, in our human world, these two ideas don't always come together. We normally have one, and then we wouldn't get the other one, or we would have this one and, and not the other. The same with strength and beauty. Many times it's, it's a one or the other option in our world, but here with God, he possesses both of them together. 
And think about uh, just an example for strength and beauty. You think about just in the insect world, Pastor Ben talked about beetles at graduation this year. Think about the beauty of a butterfly's wing and how intricate and, and amazing it is. But they're not very strong. But then you think about the hard exoskeleton of, of one of those interesting beetles. And it sure isn't beautiful. I'll tell you that right now. Or, or a song. The whole first part of the psalm was about songs. You think about the strength of music. When you think about strong, powerful music, you may think, it maybe wasn't the most beautiful thing. I could think of more beautiful music than this. But if you have beautiful music, you might think, yes, it's light and airy and maybe not that strong after all. So in our human world, these two things might be juxtaposed. But here with God, they are together with him. Verses 7 through 9 says, give unto the Lord. We started with sing, and now we are to give. We're to give. We may ask, what are we to give? To whom are we to give? From whom? Who is supposed to give? And again, we might ask, why are we to give? Well, we're to give unto the Lord. And who? Ye kindreds of the people. Again, that's everybody. All of us are included. And what are we to give? Well, we're to give glory, we're to give strength, and the glory that's due to his name. Glory and strength. Glory is that which is weighty. It's of worth and it's valuable. Here we have our call to true worship. In Greek is the word doxa. And in sign language, I think I've got this right, sign language for glory is this idea that comes up like this. Raps, am I doing that right? Okay. Um, glory. I know a few words in sign of Jesus and, and glory and some other things, but glory. Think about something that is shimmering, not reflecting, but giving off its own brightness, its own luster, if you will, of excitement. That is God, not us. We can't do that. The, the, the best we can do is reflect anything, and we're probably going to mess it up. Think about the sun and the moon. The sun is the brightness of glory, and the moon, we know, reflects that brightness. But the glory of God, typically we see it and think of it as the brightness. Um, And again, here we see, give the glory that's due to his name. We're reminded again of the third commandment, honor his name. But we're called to give, give, and give. But what are we to do? Is this all that worship is? Is it just singing? No. Is it just giving? No, it's those, but combined with other things. We're said to bring an offering and come into his courts. Interesting thing about this word offering is not the blood sacrifice that we might think, the animal that must be slain and burned and and slaughtered. But instead, this is a bloodless sacrifice, which would be a sacrifice that is more of a fellowship. This is not to atone or cover or pay for sin. That's already been accomplished. This instead is an offering of peace, an offering of fellowship. And where would you do that? Well, you would come into his courts. If you have to offer for sin, are you allowed in the courts yet? No, you must do that first. But now you're able to come into his courts with fellowship. So you're to bring an offering, you're to come into his courts, worship in the beauty of holiness, and then fear before him. So worship is much more than just song. It's much more than just giving. It's also 
worshiping in the beauty of holiness. We heard a good bit about that this morning, and I'm grateful for that and, and being reminded of those things. But these things in these few verses, this is our cue card for worship. This is what we should do. Sing, give, bring, come, worship, and fear. These are the things that we should do. Um, As we draw near to God in fellowship into his courts with the offering, we are to worship him. We are to do so in the beauty of his holiness. Can we approach God if we are not holy? No. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts. We heard again this morning about holiness, and I would, I would suggest that holiness would be God's supreme attribute. We, we, we could argue that differently later, but I would say that that is his supreme attribute. And, and someone, as I was studying for this, described holiness as you know, the image of a magnet and, and the poles and how the, the, the things come from one and, and come around and go to the other. I should have had a picture of that. But they described holiness as all the other attributes coming out of holiness and then coming back into it. I don't know if I would sign off on that 100%, but it was an interesting concept to think of the, the unifying nature of all of God's attributes within this concept of holiness. And I would suggest, as we were reminded this morning, we were told, be holy. We may not be told, be other things. We're told in the Old Testament that God gives a command and he says, do this. Why? I am the Lord. I am holy. Okay, I won't ask. Other times we see in Zechariah, the message that's written is holiness to the Lord. It's not some other attribute of God, but it's all his holiness. Here we're commanded to worship him in the beauty of his holiness. How can we worship how can our worship be of any valuable value if it's divorced from holiness? The holy nature of God will fill us with fear as we see next. His holiness would cause us to fear and demand that our lives be brought in line with His perfect standard. Again, we see all the earth. If we're wondering, who, who, who is He talking about? All the people, all the heathen, all the earth, all the kindreds of all the people. Who do you mean? It's obvious. Everyone. Hear the climax of the, of the psalm. Say unto the heathen that the Lord reigneth. This is the message of the song. Again, we looked at those other psalms that start with the exact same way. The Lord does rule, but we know that he also will rule. The future is bright with promises of what will be accomplished under Messiah's reign. We're compelled to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And it will indeed be glorious to behold we know that the earth remains under the curse of sin at the moment. And in Romans, I think it's chapter 8, describes that the creation groans awaiting its release. We know that there's fear around the world today. Uh, some, would, some would argue that uh, climate change or temperature deviations will cause the whole world to come crashing down around us. And I'm going to be a little childish, but a little faithful here. And I'm going to say, I read a verse in Peter. And he said that one day the earth will melt with a fervent heat. Until that day, I'm pretty confident that God's got it under control. And this verse helps me realize that. And again, he will judge the people righteously. And we'll see more on that in the following verses. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. This is nature 
being joyful and happy with the coming of the Lord. And the field, let the field be joyful in all the things that are therein. And the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord. All these things in nature will rejoice before the Lord. We think about some of the pictures um, in the scripture. We think the trees will clap their hands. The rocks will cry forth. Well, that's, that's interesting, but I'm not sure I completely understand it. That's okay. I don't have to understand it. It says it right there. All nation, all, all nature, all creation will joy before the Lord. And why? Because he cometh. This is not some far off, wildly distant promise. He is coming, and he is coming to judge the earth. And he will judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. So all things shall be joyful at his appearing. All things shall be happy to see him come. But he'll come as the judge. Many of us may think about a judge, and we may have, we may have different thoughts about a judge than that. I don't know that I know any judges personally, but many times you may think of a judge as, as someone who is powerful and lofty and austere, and they hold the, the choices of right and wrong and life and death. And there may, to some extent, even be some susceptibility to wrongdoing in a judge. Because if you can buy off the judge, you can get away with what crimes you may have committed. If you have enough money, if you have enough land, if you have enough wealth, you could maybe get him to side on your behalf and make his decision benefit your, your case. If you're on the opposite hand, maybe you have no wealth, no money, no land, nothing nothing to claim as your own, will the judge still make a decree on your behalf, in your benefit, if there's nothing in it for him? If he is a righteous judge, absolutely yes. He will do the right thing. In the, in the ancient times, it's, it was not uncommon for judges to be wicked, for judges to be just serving their own selves. Uh, Remember the story of Naboth's vineyard. He lost his vineyard because the judge said, "Eh, we'll let somebody else have it. It'll be that easy. There are times in the Old Testament where a judge was approached by someone who had a story to try to help sway him to make a decision in their behalf. Maybe in their mind, the truth wasn't good enough. We need more to help with this decision. That's not the kind of judge that the Lord is. The Lord will judge with righteousness and he will judge with truth. If, if you have your Bible open, you can probably look across to Psalm 98. The last verse there says, Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth with righteousness, he will judge the world and the people with equity. These two Psalms, 96 and 98, have much in common. And that last verse has a lot, lot in common as well. As Abraham said, as he considered what God might do, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The psalmist I I see here showing the same anticipation of Enoch that we read in Jude verses 14 and 15, who declared that the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. 
and to convince all, and he goes off into his tirade against those who are ungodly. And we've heard about that before. But this idea of God coming as the absolute righteous judge, the judge who will do so in absolute truth, with no question, no error, no mistake. And to this, I would echo the benediction of Jude as we close our look at this glorious psalm. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to look at this psalm. I ask that the things we've, we've heard and thought of would be something that's encouraging in our hearts to follow you. Lord, I ask that you would help us to sing, whether verbally or through our lives. Lord, that we would declare your truth among the heathen, that we would declare your glory to those that need to see it. Lord, I ask that you would help us to give, give the honor that's due your name, give to you the glory that you are due. Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand that we can anticipate you coming as the righteous judge, that you can, you will make absolute right choices. There's nothing to fear with you and your holiness. Lord, I ask that you would be with us this week. Uh, give us a good, um, good week of serving you, a good week of obeying you. Lord, help us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, David. I hope you guys take to heart that challenge and the heathen that you meet this week. Declare God's glory to them. You don't have to call them heathen, but declare God's glory to everybody you meet. I think it's only appropriate that we uh, stand and sing the doxology as we're dismissed and use this as our prayer to God. So let's stand. We'll sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. missed.